passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Go ahead and take your outlines out. And while you're doing that, I just a quick question for you. Uh, does anyone get depressed when they look at the news? Well, I thought that would be easy. Yeah, it's, it's sort of depressing to look at that stuff. Um, my dad, he goes to bed much later than I do. So when I, I go to bed, usually the last thing I say when I walk out the door from his room is I say, Dad, if you see anything good on the news, please wake me and let me know. Uh, so far, he's let me sleep sound for many days in a row. Uh, but it's true. I even checked the news before I began to write this message. I was like, okay, this is funny because it talks about Governor Cuomo on the East Coast and all of his issues and sexual indiscretion, whatever he's doing. I don't even know. I lost track of it. Then the next article was Gavin Newsom on the West Coast and the big recall effort. I'm like, this is perfect. We have like coast coast to coast, bad news and corruption. That's sort of the news, isn't it? But the news, if you've been around for a while, you know that it's not just about reporting the news. It actually tends to create controversy, doesn't it? It gets us riled up. And if we see somebody who doesn't think like us, doesn't act like us, our initial reaction to them is like usually hatred. It's usually anger against them. We don't have a lot of charitableness towards them because the news sort of uh, creates conflict between people. With hatred, conflict, and throwing people under the bus, sort of being the normal thing that takes place in our world, it's no surprise when conflict begins to creep into the church where you and I worship and where we are, are part of these things. This morning, we're going to look at conflict in the church and what we need to learn about it and how do we handle it. We'll look at uh, silly conflicts. How do we handle those? We're going to look at more serious conflicts in the church and how do we handle those in a way that is well and pleasing to God. And we'll see how Satan loves to create conflicts in God's church to divide us against ourselves and to ruin our effectiveness for Christ in this world. So get out your Bibles, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Where, while the focus of our study this morning is going to be on verses 23 through 26, I'm going to read verses 20 through 26 because that's actually one complete section. And uh, so they sort of build off of one another. So stand out of reverence for God's Word. Hopefully you have a copy of God's Word in front of you. And I'll read verses 20 through 26. Follow along with your eyes in your copy of the Word of God. Paul writes to Timothy. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish ignorant controversies. 
you know that they only breed, they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a, a knowledge of the truth. And they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That ends the reading of God's word. You can be seated. Now, as I said a moment ago, why we're going to focus on verses 23 through 26, 23 through 26 is really a continuation of what took place in verses 20 uh, through 22. And what we saw last week was Paul was talking to Timothy, and he's talking to us, of how can we put ourselves in a position where we can be maximally useful for God in this world, maximally effective for Christ and his church. And what we learned last week is that our holiness in life directly corresponds to our usefulness to God in this life. When God is looking around his church and he's looking for who he's going to use to advance his kingdom, he's not looking for particularly skillful people. What he's looking for is holy people. Those are the people that he chooses to use. So look at the top of your outline. We'll briefly review verses 20 through 22. It's this. The holiness of my life determines my usefulness for God in life. Remember last week, Paul gave us an analogy to help us understand this. He said, in a great house are many vessels. And we learned what vessels were. Vessels are just what we call household stuff. The stuff that goes in a moving van. Particularly dishes, plates, cups, drinking glasses, silverware. A big house has a lot of that kind of stuff. But the... The dishes that are useful for the master are the clean dishes. Dirty dishes that are still in the sink, you can't serve a meal on those. You can't use those again. And so the idea that Paul was saying is we want to focus on being clean dishes that the master can use for the house. We don't want to be dirty dishes in the sink. Because until we're cleaned up, until we've dealt with issues of sin in our life that we know we're, uh, we're sort of keeping hidden or not facing, we're not nearly as useful to Christ and his kingdom as what we looked at last week. In particular, there were three ways we looked at holiness. The first thing we looked at last week was this. I want to pursue holiness in my heart to be useful to God. We looked at the fact that uh, what often happens is we have issues of sin, what we call lingering sin in our life. Sin that only we know about. Maybe sin issues that even our spouse doesn't know about. It's things we look at on the internet or relationships we have with other people that are not completely really, should we say, 100% above board. Nobody knows about it. We're trying to manage it. It's going to be okay. But the problem is, while no one else in this world might know about it, God does. And the issue is it affects our holiness before him, which ultimately affects our usefulness to him. 
He's looking around his church and he says, who am I going to use right now to advance my kingdom on this particular area? He's not going to grab us. We have to deal with those issues and repent of those issues. And then once we do, we become much more impactful and useful. Second thing we looked at last week was this. I want to pursue holiness in my relationships to be useful for God. Interestingly, we looked at the fact that the relationships that God seems to be most concerned about is not those relationships we have with people who are far from Christ in this world, who don't know him at all, but he's often most concerned about those relationships we have with people who claim to be Christians but are not living for Christ at all. Those people who are using Jesus Christ as a nameplate but not as a heart reality. And we learned that we have to be careful about how closely we associate ourselves with those kind of people because what happens is their ungodly lifestyle can very quickly rub off on us. Remember the example I gave you last week about what it was like in my freshman year in a Christian college dorm when I discovered that my uh, people on the same floor like to go watch horror movies at midnight? I was like, ah, uh, sorry guys. <laughs> One time was enough. We're not going back for horror movies every Friday night. This is like putting major garbage between my earlobes. We have to create some distance. I don't want that lifestyle to rub off. And by the way, Paul talks about this. We saw last week. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or as an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So holiness we have to pursue in our heart. That increases our usefulness to God. Holiness we have to pursue in our relationships, even our relationships in the church, which increases our usefulness to God. And then last week we also looked at this. We're going to pursue holiness in my character to be useful for God. Now, remember last week we talked about that Paul says there are certain things we have to run from in our character and other things we are to run to in our character. Specifically, he said, we are to run from youthful passions. While we often think that has to do with sexual issues, we learned that in this context it really has a much broader implication. It's talking about things like pride, ego, arrogance, abuse of power. Don't have those things in your character. Run from that. That'll destroy your usefulness for God. But he said, instead, what are the things we're to run after? Run after these issues. Pursue active righteousness. Remember we talked about that? Go out of our way to do what is right. Maybe you see somebody in the church who's got a child who, who's sick and you can see they're overwhelmed and stressed and you say, you know, you call them up, hey, can I just bring over a meal? You take the initiative. And all of a sudden you're going to find God starts using you. That's the kind of character he wants of a person that he chooses to use. Someone who's pursuing active righteousness, doing the right thing. Another thing we looked at last week was pursuing faithfulness, he said, in character. Faithfulness means that we want to pursue being the kind of person who is loyal, who is trustworthy, who is faithful, the kind of friends that we all need and want. 
when we are that kind of person in our relationship with other people, what does God do? He grabs us and he uses us. He uses us in ways to advance his kingdom. He also said last week, pursue love in our character. And that was a love of choice, remember? We choose to love people. Not just the people we're attracted to. Not just the good-looking people. And the people who are like us. But people who are different from us. We choose to walk across the room. We choose to build a relationship with them. And to love on them. And you know what God says? That's the kind of person I want. That is the person I will use in this world. That's what we want to be. And the last thing we saw was this. Pursue peace. We're not somebody who generates conflict and division and gossip. We're somebody who brings relational wholeness and unity. That's the kind of person that God will choose to use in this world. So that's a quick summary of last week. Pursue holiness in my heart, in the hidden unseen places. Pursue holiness in my relationships, making sure bed character doesn't rub off. And pursue holiness in my character, is who I am as a person. Those are the kind of people that God uses. Today, we get into something that's a little bit uh, more interesting. Holiness in our conflicts. That is what we're going to look at. How do we handle ourselves well in a conflict? And you and I know that when there's a fight or an argument or a disagreement in the church, it is hard to handle ourselves well. But understand this. If we handle ourselves poorly, we greatly hinder our usefulness for Christ. If we handle ourselves well in a conflict, we become extremely useful for Christ. Like everything goes on the line when there's a difficulty and a disagreement in the church. So this is very important. So let's begin. First thing we have to know about how to handle ourselves well in a conflict and be useful to God is this. I want to avoid pointless controversies to be useful for God. Because they just breed quarrels. That's exactly what Paul says to Timothy. Have nothing to do with foolish and ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Incidentally, this is not the first time that Paul has told this to Timothy. If you go back to 1 Timothy... Paul has already admonished Timothy, a young pastor, get away from these dumb, silly quarrels that often take place in the church family that cause division. Let's go ahead and read what he said back in 1 Timothy. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach a different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, apparently that guy's on Ancestry.com, which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is, to lo is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons have swerved from these, have wandered into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. 
Paul says, avoid these vain, empty, worthless discussions, especially with people who are arguing about things they don't even know what they're talking about. Now, let me go back to 2 Timothy and look at the verse that we're zooming in on in particular. He calls these foolish and ignorant controversies. And I think that the English has sort of underplayed exactly the way Paul describes these things. The word foolish is the Greek word moros. You ever heard of the English word moron? That's where we get it from. Paul literally says, avoid these controversies that only a true moron would take place fighting about. Now, by the way, you did hear the word moron out of my mouth, I know, but I was just reading the text, cutting the word straight. That's exactly what it says. And he says also avoid these ignorant controversies. The word ignorant means uneducated. Like if you really thought about this or actually read your Bible a little bit, you would see how just ludicrous this fight, this discussion, this quarrel is that is taking place. He says avoid these things like the plague because they will breed quarrels and fights in the church like a frog has tadpoles. It's just all over the place. Now you say, thanks for the principle, Paul, but how about what does this look like in practice? And I'm going to give you some that I think would be like foolish, ignorant controversies that are just a waste of time. For instance, Mark chapter 12. Remember this? We are going through that gospel, the debate of the woman who married seven brothers. And she married the first one and didn't have any children, but he died. So because of Leverite marriage, the brother had to marry her. And then they didn't have any children, so they died. And so the next brother had to marry her, and so on and so on and so on. And then it gets to the end, and they ask Jesus, and the Sadducees ask him, so who will she be married to in the resurrection? Since she was married to all seven of them. And Jesus is like, that is a foolish, ignorant controversy that is a complete waste of time and shows you're completely ignorant because, by the way, in the resurrection, people aren't even married. Bad question. Why are you wasting your time on this? In the church, we don't get involved in that kind of stuff. We don't go down that road. I'll give you some other ones. Do angels have wings? Well, a lot of people like to fight about that one. How about this one? Did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? People like to talk about that. Hey, there is theological work where people spell out their reasons, why or why not. How about this? Uh, what are the exact details about the way the return of Christ will unfold? Now, will Jesus return? Yes. Will he resurrect our bodies? That is abundantly clear. Uh, will there be a judgment of unbelievers to determine their, their consequences or the, the way they're punished in the lake of fire? Yes, that's abundantly clear. Will there be a judgment of believers for us to determine our rewards? Yes, abundantly clear. Will there be a new heaven and a new earth where heaven and earth are combined and we reign and rule with Christ? Yes, abundantly clear. But then people start getting out their charts and their maps and their timetables and they start to figure out exactly who's going to take place when and how is it all going to unfold. And by the way, I'm okay with discussing those things. That's a good to discuss those things. But to fight over those things, to quarrel over those things, to draw blood over those things, 
to break fellowship with a brother or sister in Christ over those things? That's a foolish, ignorant controversy that is used by Satan to destroy the unity in the church. We don't go there. Another one that's speculation that in the modern day people have gone after and it's been a waste of time. You remember the book, Heaven is for Real? Written by Todd Burpo. It was about his child who was in a car accident that supposedly died and went to heaven and he describes all about angels and you know the wings and all this kind of stuff. And, and people were really following that. That was the definitive truth about what happens after you die. Real popular in Christendom for a while. And then it comes out that this eight-year-old boy who supposedly told all these stories later recants it and says, well, I made it all up. Speculation. A waste of your time. You want to find out what life is like after you die? That's where you turn. This book. This is what is faithful. This is what is true. Not in the story of an eight-year-old boy. Don't waste our time on that kind of stuff. Another one I find sort of pointless and silly is called the King James Only Debate. You guys ever run into that crowd? There's a, a group of Christians out there that believe the only Bible you can use in English is the King James. And it's sort of like the QAnon conspiracy for Jesus. And what happens is they say, some of them say, well, the modern Bibles, they're taking Bible verses out. They're trying to change your Bible and twist the Christian faith. And specifically, they talk about there's 16 verses that modern Bibles have taken out. Well, there are 16 verses, but what they said are actually in the footnotes because they weren't in the original manuscripts. So they weren't taken out. They were just put where they belong, like in the footnotes, because the oldest manuscripts we have don't have those words in them. So it's just being faithful and true to the text. But the idea that, by the way, some of these people will not fellowship with other Christians, they will not work together with other Christians, this is a foolish thing to do. Jesus is much bigger than any of that. Well, what Paul's point to Timothy and to us is this. Number one, everything you can Try to steer away from foolish, ignorant, pointless, moronic controversies in the church. Because what they will do is they will take you off the mission that you are called to do. The mission that we are called to do is to live for Jesus and to reach people with Jesus. We're not called to shoot each other, to fight with each other, and destroy each other. We're called to reach people with Jesus Christ. Now here at Crosswinds, I try very hard to avoid bickering and fighting over secondary pointless issues. Because I want you, I want us focused on reaching people with Jesus Christ. A hundred years from now, it's not going to matter if you have the exact chart right on how the return of Christ unfolds. A hundred years from now, it's not going to matter if Adam and Eve had a belly button or not. What is going to matter is how did we live for Jesus and how did we reach people with Jesus? That's the bottom line. Now here's my question. While you may not be involved in foolish and ignorant controversies, and we may not be there, but are we living on mission? 
Are we reaching people with Jesus Christ? And I know it's been hard because we've had all this COVID stuff and social separation, but that seems to be lifting a little bit. We're able to be out in public. We're able to, it's time for us to get back on mission and reaching people for Jesus. And if you look in your bulletins, I put a card in there for you. I want you to pull it out, hold it up. Everyone needs to participate. What it says on it is, I'm asking God to help me introduce blank to Jesus and invite them to church before Easter. What I want every single one of us to have is identify one person that God has put in our sphere of influence who, as far as we are aware, does not know Jesus Christ that we will begin praying for every day of this week. And we'll ask God to give us an opportunity to tell them about Jesus. Ask God to give us an opportunity to invite them to Crosswinds where they can hear about Jesus and they can worship Jesus. And, you know, we pray that God would use us that way to help reach more people with Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be on mission. And by the way, this is a focus we're trying to do right now prior to Easter. Who can we reach prior to Easter? And I'd like every single one of us to do that. Now, let's continue. As we continue, we see Jesus is the model servant of the Lord who shows us how to face conflict. It says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Paul is writing to Timothy, and he starts using this language, the servant of the Lord. Now, you and I, when we read that, we just buzz right through it. It doesn't mean much to us. I personally think that when Timothy heard this, with his Jewish background, this rung a bell in his mind. In the Old Testament, particularly in Isaiah, it talks about the servant of the Lord. Prophetically speaking about Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate servant of the Lord. The ultimate pastor. The ultimate teacher. The ultimate elder. And here's what we need to see where Paul is going. If you want to know what it means to be useful for God in a conflict, you look to Jesus. No one experienced more hatred than Jesus. No one, ex no one was more useful to God than Jesus. He is our model for how to be useful for God in a conflict. Look how Jesus lived and what he did. By the way, let's look at some of the things Isaiah tells us about how uh, Jesus handled conflict. It says Isaiah 42, verse 2, He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. Jesus was not a hellfire and brimstone preacher. He was gentle. He was soft-spoken. Even in his conflicts, he wasn't yelling at people. I like this next one, Isaiah 42, verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will he will faithfully bring forth justice. How did Jesus treat those who were discouraged? How did he treat those who were overwhelmed and weak? 
He was gentle with them. He wasn't harsh or nasty to them. Or look at this. Isaiah 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid my face from disgrace and spitting. I hid not my face, excuse me, from disgrace and spitting. Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus patiently endured the evil that was done against him. And where was it coming from? God's own people. Jesus didn't cuss anybody out. Jesus continued to speak the truth, but he also kept loving people. Jesus even loved his enemies. And so when Paul writes to Timothy, and he uses this term, servant of the Lord, what he's saying to Timothy is, Timothy, remember Jesus and how he endured conflict and was useful to God in conflict? That's the model. That's the one you want to follow. Now let's look at how he develops this. The Lord's servant is not to be quarrelsome. Was Jesus a guy who liked to pick fights? Jesus didn't try and create quarrels. In fact, I thought this is interesting. Do you notice Jesus even avoided topics of politics? Jesus did not want to be labeled on one side or the other side of a political uh, argument or equation. Now, I'm not saying that politics are unimportant. What I am saying is your relationship to Jesus is far more important. That's what's important. Now, look at, look at this. And they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are true and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Like, tell me, are, we, are you pro-Caesar or against Caesar? Which political side of the equation do you fall? And then what does he say? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. The problem is, oftentimes in the church, we allow ourselves to get drawn into quarrels. Sometimes we get drawn into what's called political quarrels. Even we get drawn into them in the foyer. We're getting into political fights. And here is the problem with that. Whenever we get drawn into these political quarrels, we start alienating people. We do. Because people who may not 100% agree with us instantly become alienated from us. Years ago, uh, a Republican group, one in, not here at this church, but at a different church, they asked if I would put a voter's guide into our church bulletin. I refused. 
And the answer was, we are not about a Republican or a Democrat party. We're about something far bigger than either of them, which is Jesus. Then they wanted to put the Republican voter guide on the cars under, under uh, windshield wipers. And I sent the ushers out, take them all off. I don't want somebody who is coming to this church, who's needing to meet Jesus, to come here and think, oh, we're about politics. We're not about politics. We're about Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something. A political party is not going to change your life, but Jesus Christ will. A political party is not going to save your soul. Jesus Christ will. That is why we try to avoid these quarrels. When people walk in the door, I want them to meet, see, and know Jesus Christ. Because at the end of the day, he is the only one that can change their life. Now, am I saying that, there's, that politics are completely unimportant? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that Jesus is far more important. So we don't want to get drawn into those quarrels and then be labeled as that person. We want to be labeled as the Jesus guy, the Jesus girl. Not as a political person. Secondly, we want to be useful for Christ. We want to know that the Lord's servant is to be kind to everyone. Paul says to Timothy, you know, don't get drawn into quarrels and make sure that when you're in the church, you don't start playing favorites in the church. You are kind to everyone in the church. Now, by the way, was Jesus known for being kind to everyone? Yeah, well, he was. He was kind. Like Matthew 14, 14. This is what came to mind. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Now, he didn't say, well, which political party are you? I'm only going to work with certain ones. He didn't turn around and say, you know, let me know what you did in your past. I'm only going to heal certain ones. He was kind to them, and he, and he healed all of them. Now, the point is this. Pastor Timothy, you want to be known for your kindness to everyone in the church, not for playing favorites with certain people in the church. And I thought about Jesus. Remember as he was being crucified? What did Jesus say? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. That's kindness. Kindness to everyone. Kindness in action. He says this, you want to be used by God in a, in a controversy? Look at Jesus. The Lord's servant must be able to teach. And by the way, this able to teach thing, it's an interesting word. Um, it doesn't necessarily just mean collecting data or organizing data. It means effectively communicating to people and effectively being able to motivate and change people. And as I thought about this for a little bit, I thought it's interesting because right before this, Paul talks about being kind to everyone. And right after this, he talks about patiently enduring evil. And I, I don't know if I'm 100% right, but I'll just give you my thoughts on this. I think what he's saying is an effective pastor teaches kindly and graciously and gently while they're enduring evil done against them. 
and that we teach others kindly, graciously, and gently. While we are enduring evil done against us. When we do that, that makes us very effective for Christ in that conflict. As I was writing this message, what came to mind as I got to this point was a class I had in seminary. I had Dr. Willem Van Gemmeren for one of my Old Testament professors. A real neat guy. He was a sort of a covenant theologian. There, at the same time in the school was another professor known as Dr. John Salehammer. He uh, also was an Old Testament professor. Looked at the Old Testament a little differently than Dr. Van Gemmeren. And so we kept talking to these guys back and forth. Can we get a debate? A debate between you guys for just one class. And they finally agreed. And I can still remember the debate because it didn't take long and they were way over my head in what they were talking about. And so I'm trying to figure out who's going to win because I don't understand even half the stuff they're talking about in my 20s. But I did understand this. That Dr. Salehammer, he was very quick-witted, but he's also very sharp-tongued. And he would take little jabs, little shots, little pot shots as we were going through. And I began suddenly to sort of develop a distaste for him. Where Dr. Van Gemmeren was consistently gentle, consistently kind, never raised his voice, always put his finger in the text and gently explained the text. At the end of the debate, I had completely lost track of what both these guys were talking about. But I did know in my mind who won. It was Dr. Van Gemmeren because of how kindly and gently he taught and responded while under attack. In fact, you want to know how impressed I was with him? When I proposed to my wife, I went to Dr. Van Gemmeren and says, of all the professors I have in this school, would you be the one to perform the wedding ceremony for me? Because I respect you that much. And he did. So, folks, we want to be useful for Christ. It's not oftentimes in a conflict how effectively we can destroy somebody with an argument. It's how gently, softly, and kindly we can talk with somebody and teach someone while we're in that argument. That equates with effectiveness for God in those times. The next one. The Lord's servant must patiently endure evil. And by the way, this is the hardest one in the list, isn't it? <laughs> when in the church there are people who are saying terrible things about us, who are saying hurtful things about us and taking shots at us. But this is the path that Jesus chose, isn't it? He patiently endured evil. He did not get revenge. And if we are going to be useful for Christ in a conflict, especially in one in a church, we smile, we listen, and we absorb that evil. We don't try and get revenge on the person who hurt us. Look what it says in 1 Peter. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he reviled. He did not revile in return. 
When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When people yell at you, when they raise their voice at you, when they get on social media and they say all kinds of hurtful and untrue things about you, when you say, what do I do? You follow Jesus. You patiently endure that evil. But how do I respond? How do I right these wrongs? God is still on the throne. God knows exactly what's taking place in your life and the effectiveness of what happens at that point will be if you turn if you turn into a vengeful and hateful person or if you continue to be like Jesus and be a kind, loving, gentle person who absorbs the evil even though you don't agree with any of it. As I said earlier, one of the things that I found, well, I didn't say this earlier, but I, I would have said it a moment ago earlier. Uh, quite honestly, this is one of the things that I have found most difficult to apply in my own life. When people say things about me as a pastor that I don't believe are true, or when they say things that are hurtful about my wife, or about my children. And by the way, yes, it does happen. You know what kind of adrenaline rush goes on in your system. And the initial response is, I want my pound of flesh. But then you stop and you pray and say, no. If I do that, I'm going to completely ruin my usefulness for God in this situation. I have to be patient. I have to be kind. I have to endure and absorb evil just like Jesus did. By the way, this is, there's a corrective, or a, not a corrective, a balance for it at the end here. The Lord's servant is to correct his opponents with gentleness. And this is the counterbalance. Patiently enduring evil doesn't mean you never say anything. You can say something. You can point out, by the way, this is not true. But you do it with complete gentleness. This means mildness. Literally, it means softness. In other words, when you correct people, you are trying to maintain the relationship, not trying to destroy the relationship. Because isn't that often what happens when somebody's done evil against us? We want to correct them, but we want to cut them off of the knees as we do it. Not if you're going to be effective for Jesus in that one. Correct them gently. Now, he ends with this. What's really at stake? Here's what's at stake. The goal of a Christian in conflict is compassion and not revenge. Understand that. Why do we endure evil patiently? Why do we correct gently? Why are we kind to everyone? Why do we refuse to get drawn into quarrels? Our goal is compassion to a conflictual Christian not revenge against a conflictual Christian. Here's why. We are to pray that God grants repentance to a conflictual Christian that has drifted away. By the way, God is the only one who can grant repentance to them, just so you know. 
Repentance is talked about in the Bible as a gift from God, not something we can create or force. Repentance is a gift from God when you come to Christ. And as a Christian, if you end up in a conflictual relationship, sometimes Christians need to be granted the gift of repentance a second time because they've lost sight of their sin. They've lost sight of what they are doing. Now, while repentance is the gift from God that many times make Christians who are conflictual may need to get from God, what role do we play? Your gentleness in the conflict. Your kindness to people in that conflict. You're willing to endure the evil done to you in that conflict is strategically used by God to lead those people to repentance. Do you understand that? We want to be people that are used by God to lead others to repentance when they have gone astray. And our character, when we pursue Jesus and imitate Jesus in that conflict, God will use us to be the kind of people that help lead them to repentance. Let me just get this last point here on the back side. Why do Christians oftentimes end up in these conflicts? Where does it come from? And why do we need compassion? Christians can be trapped by Satan, Paul says, to do his will. And they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This is new to many of us. But understand and realize that Christians can drift away from Christ in the church. They can be captured by Satan, and literally this says to be taken alive in a snare by Satan, captured to do his will. And what is his will? That they would become conflictual Christians in the church, create controversies in the church, and create division in the church. And we have compassion on them. We don't try to destroy them. Because what happened is we understand that they've been captured by Satan to do his will. Which is why we try to be used by God to lead them to repentance. So my challenge is this. We want to be men and women useful to God in a conflict to help free people who are creating conflicts because they've been caught by Satan's trap. This is why we at Tremble One try to avoid silly controversies. Don't get drawn into them. They just breed quarrels. When we can't avoid the controversy, we want to be like Jesus in the controversy. Do not be quarrelsome. We want to be kind to everyone. We want to teach, teach them gently, even while under attack. We want to patiently endure evil and not get revenge and correct our opponents with gentleness so we would be useful for Christ in a conflict helping to bring healing and restoration in his church let's pray heavenly father we oftentimes forget that satan can get into your church and capture even christians who have fallen away to do his will and create division. I ask that you would help us to be a useful vessel, 
a clean vessel, a vessel used as an instrument by you to help lead people to repentance. May we be men and women who endure evil, who are kind to everyone, who teach and correct with great gentleness. That is our goal, that is our plan, that is our hope, to be instruments, vessels, useful in the hands of the Master. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.